I'm Mike Green, uh, Senior Vice President here for Asia and uh, Professor at Georgetown University. We've uh, put together a distinguished panel of uh, scholar practitioners, um, none of whom in their previous incarnations were allowed to answer any of the hypothetical questions we're going to pose today. <laughs> but we're going to do all hypotheticals today because that's really one of the best ways to tease out a, what we think might happen on the peninsula, but, but even harder, B, what do we do about it? Um, uh, to my immediate left is my colleague here at CSIS and at Georgetown, Dr. Victor Cha, um, one of the preeminent experts on this uh, question in the country and the world, served in the NSC and was the deputy uh, chief for the six-party talks. Um, Ambassador uh, Robert Gallucci um, was president of the MacArthur Foundation, um, assistant secretary of the lead negotiator, with North Korea in the 90s uh, in the agreed framework process. Um, dean at Georgetown, a uh, stellar career marred by only one decision, hiring me at Georgetown. <laughs> um, Chris Johnson, our Freeman Chair in China Studies, who's worked this problem in government uh, and in constant dialogue with Chinese interlocutors. Uh, General uh, Walter Skip Sharp, the former commander of US Forces Korea. Uh, and Christine Wormuth, until recently the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. So these are all people who are not allowed to say what they really think or what might happen in these hypothetical scenarios. We're going to, we're going to test them. Um, uh, but first, uh, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Cha to give us a scene setter where we are in North Korea. And then we're going to test you. We're going to use the clickers in your seats. We're going to put up a series of scenarios and where you think things might go and then use that to uh, key off discussions on the panel on where we think things might go and what we should do about it. But let me turn next to Victor to set the stage. Great. Um, uh, thanks, Mike. Um, <clears throat> so every presidency is defined only partially by the issues that they campaigned on and the agenda they had coming into office. More often than not, however, we measure the medal of presidencies by the unexpected crises that they must deal with. For President Bush, this was clearly the terrorist attacks of 9-11, completely changed almost every element of his presidency. For President-elect Trump, this crisis could very well come from North Korea. The normally aggressive regime has taken, unusually has taken an unusually violent path, even by their own extraordinary standards. In the past year, the regime under Kim Jong-un has conducted 25 ballistic missile tests and two nuclear tests. Since 2009, it has done 65 major provocations and ballistic missile tests, including four nuclear tests. By comparison, in the 14 years prior, Pyongyang had done only 16 missile tests and one nuclear test. The leader has stated unequivocally that he runs a nuclear weapon state and that he has no intention of disarming. Indeed, he has enshrined his nuclear weapon status uh, in the North Korean constitution. Our own data at CSIS indicates that North Korea will challenge the new administration almost immediately upon taking office. This would be for the purpose of establishing a position of strength. Eight years of strategic patience, the outgoing administration's policy of sanctions designed to cause the North Koreans to cry uncle and come back to the table has done little to curb the threat. Over the past year, North Korea has crossed technical thresholds that were previously thought to be beyond their reach for years. They may have scores of nuclear weapons by the end of this decade, only four years away. And it is entirely plausible that during President Trump's four years in office, 
North Korea will demonstrate an ability to reach the west coast of the United States with a nuclear-tipped ballistic missile, making it the only country outside of China and Russia to have such a capability. At the same time, North Korea, under the opaque Kim Jong-un regime, may try to engage the, uh, may try to engage the United States with proposals for peace treaty talks or the release of an American college student who has been detained since January. The paths forward, given all of these uncertainties, are about as clear as a foggy day in London. We discern five paths for the purpose of this exercise. A positive path would entail a North Korean decision, whether because of Chinese pressure or because of the aggregation of sanctions, to come back to the negotiating table with serious intent to negotiate over their nuclear weapons programs. This could be in a bilateral format with the United States or through a return to six-party talks hosted by China. A second path is more ambiguous, though still related to diplomacy. That is, North Korea shows a willingness to return to diplomacy, but without a commitment to denuclearize, instead focusing on negotiating a peace treaty with the United States as setting the stage potentially for tension reduction. A third path is negative. This is one in which Kim Jong-un accelerates his efforts to grow his nuclear capabilities accompanied by more nuclear detonations, missile tests, fiery threats, and potentially even horizontal proliferation to Iran, Pakistan, or other non-state actors. A fourth path we call instability. This is characterized by discontinuities internal to the North Korean regime. The rate of high-level defections and purges in North Korea is unprecedented, which indicates a significant degree of churn inside the system. This internal instability can manifest itself in external spasms that generate outright conflict in the region. The fifth and final path is status quo. North Korea in this scenario would not be characterized by an increased tempo of testing nor an increased interest in diplomacy. Instead, it would work methodically, as it has done over the past few years, to build their programs, remain cool to negotiation, and provoke occasionally, but not at a level that would generate US or South Korean reactions. As Yogi Berra once said, the, predi the predictions are hard, especially about the future. <laughs> Along with the experts on this panel, we will use our next hour together to work through the challenges of each scenario and the key uh, policy pivot points for the next administration. Um, thank you. So we want to test um, uh, your um, predictions um, and uh, put up on the screen uh, the five scenarios that uh, Victor just described. So you can take a minute and read them. Um, your clickers, will these have to be turned on, right? So make sure they're on. That's the first test. Um, and take a second and read these through and click. You only get one vote. You can change your vote for about 30 seconds and then we'll lock it. So take a look and we'd ask everyone in the audience um, what you think will happen, um, let me reassure you, we have no way of reverse engineering this and figuring out who voted for what, so it's completely anonymous. And are we on, Will? So uh, click away. Oh, I can't see yeah, the response. Uh, they're turning off and on? Oh, there we go, okay. All right. He's waiting for them to... Ambiguity wins. What's the difference between C and E? Yeah. Yeah. E, is, yeah. e is a more incremental and cautious version 
of C. We've, we've seen um, a rapid acceleration of testing of ballistic missiles and nuclear warheads in the last few years, and uh, that's C. Um, e, I think, Victor, if I'm wrong, is continued but more incremental and somewhat more cautious um, development. I'd like to have a word with the professor who, who put that C and E together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, C would be uh, a much higher tempo of testing. Right. We included horizontal proliferation in C, um, uh, as well as more provocation. We had five so. letters on the clicker. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, uh, I won't ask the... The, the person who voted for A to identify themselves. Um, um, but uh, I have some real estate in Florida if you're interested afterwards. No. Um, all right, so um, uh, largely pessimistic and negative uh, uh, on the whole. Let's now, we'll come back to this, but let's go to the second clicker question that um, looks at the, the scenario uh, uh, voted uh, for by one person, which is the you know, diplomatic track starts to open again. So this is an A, B, yes or no question. Um, should the U.S. agree to return to talks if North Korea expresses readiness? And we'll talk about the conditions or how that would work with the panel, but what do you think? Interesting. So no one expects a positive scenario, but there seems to be an openness with the audience to testing diplomacy again. Um, <laughs> um, so, Ambassador, how would this work if we went back to the table? What would the conditions be? What would we need to do or see? Or is it just worth it no matter what? I would like C, none of the above. Um, so it seems to me that uh, when you, we haven't done this yet, but if you explored the options, policy options, none of them are good. So under those circumstances, negotiations look good to me as a nonviolent way of proceeding, possibly small chance, towards the best outcome. The only question in my mind, really, or the principal question is, what's the downside of doing that? Uh, what, what trouble could we get into by engaging in the, the talks? Why not say yes, in other words? The answer is, I think that if you're not careful and you get into a uh, protracted serious negotiation with the DPRK and do not have as an understood possibility of a successful outcome the denuclearization, not only of North Korea, but of the Korean Peninsula to make them feel good, then I don't see how you avoid legitimizing the nuclear weapons program in the DPRK and thus putting at risk our extended, the, the credibility of our extended deterrent in for the Japanese and for the Republic of Korea. So I'm kind of caught on this one. I reckon this could be a poison pill, given what the North has said. But my own inclination would be that not that they have to say, we'll give up our weapons as a precondition, but that a negotiation would have to include the nuclear issue, their nuclear status, and the possibility, if it is acceptable and a political relationship evolves from it, including a peace treaty, that the North would become a non-nuclear weapons state again. Let me ask Christina then, General Sharp, is there a way to have some kind of dialogue or negotiation and maintain the credibility of our extended deterrent um, and hold together our allies uh, who may actually want some negotiation? It depends, I guess. We'll start with Christine. I, I think there is. I mean, I, I, I think 
It's something I observed over the years as undersecretary and also working at the National Security Council is you need to avoid getting trapped in options, you know, A, B, and C, because they're rarely um, sort of, they're rarely sort of single stovepipes that give you all the answers. And you want to sort of try to, I think, step back and, and think out of the box a little bit. And often there's, I think, options that can be combinations of some of these choices. And that's what I found myself thinking as I looked at some of these slides. You know, um, I'm very much, I think, with Ambassador Gallucci in terms of thinking there is potential in diplomacy, but I, I would want to cast it as a very comprehensive conversation that would potentially talk about a peace treaty at some point down the road, but as part of that conversation, it would be understood that we would also talk about denuclearization. And I think it's very important, um, you know, to maintain that extended deterrence with Japan and with the South Koreans, having them be very closely involved in that dialogue with us and feel like they understand what is happening and what our intentions are is critical. Um, I think something that will undoubtedly come up later in the discussion is the importance of China to this problem set. And I do think that China is a critical piece but I think it's very dangerous for us to potentially get in a situation where the United States and China are working together to try to solve this problem in sort of a condominium kind of way. I think that would be very unsettling for the South Koreans in particular. So to me, part of the key of maintaining the integrity of our extended deterrence is making sure that we are consulting very closely with the Japanese and the South Koreans in any kind of a comprehensive approach that we might try to pursue. Um, Skip, same question, but if you could also um, anticipate where you think our uh, allies in Seoul would be on this, and I know it depends a lot on the election result in Korea, but. I guess I'd come from this a little bit different angle. I put little to no hope in diplomacy, given this regime, period. I do not think that we should go into talks with them under, the, under conditions that are short of them coming to say, okay, we can work through, and if we come to agreement, we will get rid of our nuclear weapons. That, I think, has to be a going-in position. I think to talk, basically, even if that goes in, I do worry about both the credibility that we are giving North Korea, and then secondly, the additional time to continue to develop their capabilities as we go through. Chris, so, is, oh, sorry. So to answer your question about, about South Korea, I, I think that uh, you know, I can't speak for the next administration within South Korea, but I think with the people and the, the, the concern that is in South Korea about the capabilities of North Korea, to be able to go and start talking to North Korea along these lines, especially if we get into peace treaties and things like that, would send real shocks and real concerns within our South Korea ally. So Chris, would this, if we took this path, caveated conditions uh -huh. of the things you heard, uh -huh. would we find that Beijing is a much more helpful partner well, on North Korea, or would it make them complacent? Uh, well, I think both options are possible, but my sense is you know, China has been seeking dialogue, a return to dialogue, for a long time. Certainly with its recent behavior in the UN action, uh, I think it is an absolute certainty that the next thing will follow will be now it's time to go back to, uh, to talks. Um, I think one of the challenges that we face are a couple things. I want to just pick up on something Christine said because I think it's so important. You know, it's never a good idea to sort of sublet U.S. policy on North Korea to China, you know, and suggest that they have all of the leverage and would they please use it and so on. It has to be a mixed 
package. You, you can't do it without the Chinese, but they have to also occasionally feel like they're being left out of the discussion because sometimes that's what motivates them to, to sort of get involved. I think the other challenge we're facing is that there's a, an emerging disconnect, I think, between a China that is in some ways stuck in its own internal monologue about things like regime collapse and buffer zone you know, from US forces and things like this, and the US emerging perception, as Victor said, of an existential threat to the United States. And those positions don't align very well, and so it will be interesting to see in a new administration how we work to bridge that gap. I assume all of you are speaking on the premise that North Korea is not conducting nuclear and, and uh, uh, major missile tests as they're offering to come back to the talks. Uh -huh. uh, this is assuming there's a fairly calm relatively calm uh, standard of behavior for North Korea. May I? Yeah. I, it, I skip on your, on your point, because I think that it, among the things you would want to get clear in getting into a negotiation is that they cannot be making progress on their weapons programs while we're talking, lest they and we, on our side, be accused of allowing them to stall. Right. Right. So you, you have, it, it, it was the standard way back in 1993-94, while we're talking, you can't build, right? You can't test either extended range ballistic missiles or nuclear explosive devices. You're essentially like that period to, to be one in which there's a timeout and we're going to have these discussions. And, but and what would I, you say a verifiable timeout? Yeah. I mean, are we just going to trust them that they aren't spinning centrifuges and doing well, experiments it, it, underground. There's a, you can start parsing this. I said no tests of ballistic missiles or nuclear weapons. You can go further and say you may not, uh, you may not run centrifuges. The problem with that is if you make that, I'm suggesting this is a precondition of a very bad word to use for if you really <laughs> want negotiations. But if you want to have, we're talking about the precondition, and you say you can't run centrifuge when we are not certain of the location of the other centrifuge facility, then they have to make a huge concession to get a verifiable. I don't like phrases that we know we can't verify and we put out and say we're doing because it exposes the right flank to the uh, an administration. It's not a smart thing to do. So that's why I worry about saying they may not operate centrifuges unless you really can answer the question, how would you know? Right? Their assurance wouldn't quite be good enough. So the there's disagreement, of, I, I, I think there's consensus that the odds are very long, even if we go into this. Shake your head no if you disagree. There's some consensus that if we do go into this, we have to be extremely careful to avoid a condominium with China or to put our allies into a position where they have even greater anxiety about our commitment, our extended deterrence. Um, uh, but you know, this is gonna, we're going to have some pressure from China for dialogue. We, uh, we may have that from the next South Korean government. I don't think Park Geun-hye is going to go soft, mm -hmm. um, even as she goes down uh, politically. Um, so Victor, mechanically, you know, if, if, if the next administration feels at some point, as part, of a, as part of, a, of a portfolio of policies, as Christine described, including deterrence and active defense and so forth, but not, certainly not, not the most important and not the one we're hanging our, 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 our bets on. If it's, if it's part of that portfolio in the president's under some pressure feels we need to find some way to show we are talking, how would that work mechanically? How would you make sure the allies are on side? How would you structure the talks? Um, what would your proposal be if we, um, if we get to that point? And assuming the North Koreans are not actively testing and doing things. Right, so I mean, so just one data point on the whole testing issue is um, 
So again, our, our research at CSIS shows that um, when we are actually in talks, we meaning the United States are in talks with the North Koreans, whether it's bilateral or in a multilateral format, they do not test. Um, there's been uh, only two occasions in the last, I don't know, 30 years. Uh, one was in 1998, <coughs> and the other was in the aftermath of the Leap Day deal of the Obama administration, two exceptions that really prove the rule. So, um, uh, but the question of going beyond simply, you know, testing, you know, verifying centrifuge, uh, free activity on freeze there, that, that's a whole different ballgame. I, I mean, I think the, I mean, there are three things here. The first is, the, as Christine said, coordination with the allies. Um, North Korea's <laughs> preference probably is always to do this bilaterally rather than a, in a multilateral format. Um, when you, uh, created the whole you the six party format you know the North Koreans were very resistant to that they had to be dragged into it so um, uh, coordination with Japan and South Korea becomes incredibly important especially if we're going into this explicitly without as the question says any reference to nuclear or missile issues um, the second thing I think is we we have to be very realistic about what you know it, even if we're not talking about nuclear missile issues I think it's you know, going into any negotiation, we have to be pretty clear about and modest about what our ambitions are going to be. You know, I think, at least based on my experience doing this and perhaps Bob based on his, is that we sort of hit a wall. I mean, we can get, in some format, IAEA inspectors back in Yongbyon, back uh, on the ground. Um, we hit a wall when we get to the verifiable declaration. Right? That is where you sort of hit a wall because they're only interested in showing, explaining what's at Yongbyon or the plutonium that they've gotten. And so I think for a president, they have to decide whether um, that is worth going for or whether, uh, whether it's not. It's just not worth the candle. Um, and the third, uh, the third thing I would say is, 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 as Chris said, we have to moderate our expectations when it comes to China. Um, uh, you know, we would like uh, China to make a strategic decision, but all they make are tactical decisions on North Korea. So we have to, through timing, through a variety of different pressures, use their interest in doing tactical things as a way to try to push the North Koreans past the, um, the, uh, the declaration part of any negotiation. So, um, um, I mean, it seems to be those three things are, we are are the three things we need to, the boxes we need to check if we were to go mm -hmm. into something like this. Um, I'm gonna abuse my position as chair and add two more caveats that I think you'll agree with. Yeah. Yeah. One is there's coordination with allies and there's coordination with allies. Um, informing them what we're doing in this scenario, in my view, is not coordination with allies. Right. I think you need a trilateral process where you go in if you're gonna talk um, on a, with agreement how far you're gonna go and how far you're not gonna go. And, and not just inform them how the negotiations are going, uh, in my view. Um, the second caveat I would say is um, you do nothing to, in addition to doing nothing if you, to legitimize their nuclear program, you do nothing to um, relax in any way the sanctions and interdiction and other actions we have in place, which are not just, originally they were conceived of as ways to push North Korea to the table. I think they're now primarily ways to uh, limit the program and demonstrate for other proliferators the consequences. And you don't want to trade away any of that for what would be process. But I do think there is a real chance, uh, despite the pessimism of the audience, which I agree with, that we'll come under some pressure from Seoul and China 
um, in the coming years to, to, to dialogue. And so these are really helpful things to think about. All right, let's get back to the, this was the optimistic scenario, <laughs> uh, which one of you thought was possible. Um, let's get back to the pessimistic scenarios, which the audience uh, expected, and ask the next clicker question, which is uh, basically what we do um, at, the, at the last stage before North Korea crosses its threshold. In other words, if North Korea stacks a long-range ballistic missile, a TDY-2, uh, probably capable of reaching the West Coast, um, and they've got it ready to launch, and we don't know what's on the payload, um, should we, what should we do? Um, reserve the right to take out the missile, kinetic action, or B, intercept it with missile defenses, uh, if you think that's possible, or C, um, you know, stand by and be alert. So let's get the audience to vote on this, and then we'll go through the practicalities of these options. D. There is no D. <laughs> um, unless it's the one person who wanted dialogue, and it's stubbornly. I think that was Fox first. Um, all right. Well, um, yeah. So reserve the right is not as the same as saying take out the missile. Um, uh, let me turn to Skip first because all of these have immediate implications for the command, for Americans in Korea and Japan, for our alliances, immediate implications. Why don't you start us off on the practicality, the consequences of each option? Um, okay. Uh, to begin with, as you probably inferred from my last talk, um, I don't think any talking, any diplomacy is going to convince Kim Jong-un that he should change. I think he needs to be forced to change or change. And in order to do that, I think both internal and external pressure has to be put on the regime. And I think one of the key elements of external pressure that needs to come is to be able to, as best we can, halt, slow down his ballistic missile development. Every launch that he launches, he learns more, he gets more capability. And I don't restrict, I don't just solely mean long-range intercontinental ballistic missiles. It's all missiles. It's submarine-launched. It's the shorter-range missiles. He gets more and more capability. UN Security Council resolutions have been numerous that have told him he cannot do this. I personally think it's time to start enforcing those. We've got to do it selectively. We've, but I do think that we need to demonstrate we have the capability either both before launch and after launch to be able to do it. So what do we need to do to your question from a military perspective? Uh, we need to make sure we got the capabilities in place to execute the options, which is very doable in my mind. We got to make sure that we have the strong defenses and the strong will and that he knows that, that if he responds back after we take one of these missiles out, that there is a lot more coming his way with something that he holds dear. Try to deter him, but be prepared in case he, he plays the card dope, I'm willing to risk this to be able to do that. I think we're to that point uh, that we need to have that capability and we need to do that. Otherwise, we're, every launch, as I said, gives him more capability to be able to do this. And it thumbs his, you know, you know thumbs his nose at, at 
what the rest of the world has told him that we're not going to stand for. He says, you've been standing this for years and years and years. And so I, I am to the point now that he has got, he's getting close enough to the capability that we need to stop him from actually having a credible capability. Let me ask you, Victor, you can come back to this, but just a quick um, uh, uh, fact uh, check. Um, is it correct to say that um, since the Korean War, um, when there's a credible threat of U.S. use of force, the DMRK has always backed away. Um, uh, and is it also correct to say we've never gone kinetic before? Is there, what, um, what in the history of right. this can we? I mean, so from? I, prob I mean, I, I guess I mean I would say that uh, uh, there have been several points in history in which we've come to a crisis where there was the potential for some escalation, um, and in most of those cases, the United States sent a strong deterrent message, but it was also restrained in terms of its response. Um, whether you're talking about the, the Blue House raid uh, in 1968, uh, the Pueblo seizure, the EC-121 shootdown, uh, the um, Axe murder, uh, you know, there have been a series of these things in which um, uh, I think the United States has had a firm response, but it's always been one that's looked um, a bit restrained. So, um, uh, and, and I think that's the way we see it. I think the way the North Koreans may see it is they may see uh, a paper tiger. You know, it's entirely plausible that that's the case. I mean, just as we said, the tempo of testing over the past year over the, and since January of 2009 is just unprecedented, even by North Korean um, uh, standards. So let's talk about risk. I'm sure you'd agree if there's risk in this approach, and your assessment, I think, would be we're at the point where we are going to have to assume more risk in dealing with this problem to prevent it from becoming a serious threat to the homeland. Um, let me open it up to Christine and Chris and to Bob. Can we manage the risk? Is it just too big? Um, what are your thoughts? Christine? Um, I'm quite concerned about the risk. because I mean, I think in particular the concern I have about actually taking preemptive, if you will, kinetic action against a missile that's on the launching pad is what does Kim Jong-un do in response? And uh, given our concerns about road mobile launchers, given the challenge of sort of the find, fix, finish equation, um, I, I worry quite a bit about our ability to sort of manage a potential retaliation. And I, and I would think that the South Koreans and the Japanese would be quite worried about it as well. Can I ask Christine, sorry, you're, are you talking about option uh, A and B or primarily A? Primarily A. Uh -huh. I mean, I'm talking about the idea of, I mean, I personally, while I absolutely share General Sharp's um, concerns about the pace and scope of the missile program, and this was something we definitely, you know, wrestled, the, the current administration wrestled with. Um, the idea of actually, you know, doing something before a missile is launched, um, again, I worry about sort of the what happens next, and are we prepared to manage the second round of that engagement? Um, I, I'm a big proponent of trying to, A, get the Koreans and the Japanese to do more with us um, collectively in terms of missile defense, and then also doing everything we can to boost our own national missile defense system. You know, the Department of Defense has been in the process of making some investments to try to improve the system overall, but that, that frankly, the, the money for that is always under threat. There are trade-offs. Um, 
So making sure that we're doing everything we can to invest in that program, I think, is something that I'm focused on. But, but, I, but I definitely admit it's a, it's a challenge, because I agree that we've sort of reached a threshold of how much more are we going to let this go on. Uh, but at the same time, the risks are very significant. Chris? I would just say that adding another dimension to the risk profile is, is uh, what appears to be an increasing uh, sense that uh, you know, China itself its ability to understand what's happening in North Korea from a decision-making point of view is diminished, you know, compared to where it was uh, perhaps in the past. Uh, a lot of China's sort of best antennae, if you will, into the regime have been lopped off rather systematically. Uh, and so, you know, to Christine's point, when you're in round two, obviously China becomes a very big player at that point. If they're flying blind in terms of how to understand the North Korean piece, it could make them much more belligerent with us. Um, so I think that adds to the risk profile. Yeah, Bob and, and then Victor. So I want to establish some credibility here. <laughs> I believe that after the Syrian case, uh, where the North Koreans built a plutonium production reactor in Syria secretly, that we should have not only, I mean, the Israelis executed their nonproliferation policy and <laughs> flattened that, that reactor. I believe we should have done something kinetic then I believe now we should not miss an opportunity to tell them that another such activity of transfer of nuclear weapons related material technology would result in a very violent response from the United States of America. Okay, I'm trying to establish my credibility here, folks. <laughs> because when I look at that, I see I don't understand again. I mean, does that mean if the trajectory looks like they're aiming for LA, what the hell, let it go. But if it's San Francisco, <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what C really means. It basically but, means you don't do much anything. about it. Okay. So I am then looking at A and B. Um, and, uh, or B is, is what I really meant. I don't know what the, the path means. I guess a bad path, good path. I'm really looking at A. And I, I'm not in favor um, of the United States of America bluffing virtually ever in these kinds of things. And I, I believe if you are doing A, and uh, Skip, if you're going to be a national security advisor and say, Mr. President, A, that means I'm ready to go to war right, on the Korean Peninsula. Because you cannot guarantee the president they won't do anything. They may do something. And then the worst thing for us to do would be nothing in response to what they did. So, Mr. President, if I'm going to recommend A, I'm going to recommend that we should be prepared to go to war the next time they want to test a missile of any kind. South Korea, are you ready for that? Even a new administration, we don't I think that would be very important uh, on a consultation which should not be uh, for information. Right. <laughs> so, By the way. I mean, they should be aboard for having their country Absolutely. at war, yeah. right? So this is a really big deal, A. And, I, I, and we're also now deciding uh, what countries are allowed to have what kinds of missiles, right? And it's, it's, it's going to be our choice because that country we know is aimed for nuclear weapons to be able to deliver them to the United States of America. And they put up little videos of blowing up New York City, where my daughter lives. I mean, I'm upset about this. So I, 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 I don't like what they're doing, but I find, A, uh, the trigger for war to be a testing of a missile of any kind to be just too aggressive and unnecessarily so. If that was a, a missile, after they had the capability to reach the United States, we were uncertain about the payload. And the, and the DNI came in and said, that could be a nuclear weapon aimed at the United States of America, then I don't have any reservations. 
right? And I don't know that then even Seoul could decide we couldn't preempt, right? right? But that... Skip, I'm gonna, before I turn to Victor to pull us out of this abyss, um, uh, this is an NSC meeting you heard from the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Are you talking about us being ready to go to war um, and accepting that level of risk to Again, stop? Again, if you look at the question, ballistic missile, TD2, not sure what's on the war, on, on the, on the, with all that Kim Jong-un has said about testing and all of that, I don't want to wait. And that's, that's the argument I'm making. I don't want to wait mm -hmm. and count on ballistic missile defense to be able to take this thing out. They're doing it in violation. And this, to me, him shooting off missiles like this could be viewed as an act of war. If you, can I just, yep. if you really also. believe there's a, a uh, a non-trivial, serious possibility that there's a payload above that. I, I flip that question around entirely and say, how could a president not preempt? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't we want to impeach him if the next thing that happened is he was told that could be Los Angeles and he didn't do anything? I mean, you can create a situation here where the obligation of the president, that first one when he raises his hand, is to, is to make sure that doesn't happen. So the premise here is that we don't know. Um, which is why this is actually, I think, the hardest of the questions. Because the next question is about once they've had that capability, where your options are actually far more limited. Um, I want to get to that. Let's ask Victor to try to I, pull this together. I'm not going to be able to pull it, but I mean, I think, I mean, the, I mean, I think in many ways we're already here today. I mean, this is where we are because um, the North Koreans have said very clearly that they have standardize the design for a miniaturized nuclear warhead. And they have been uh, rocket test, uh, uh, testing at rocket engines, right, uh, consistently. So it seems to me that we can't, if there is, if they stack something um, and they say it's a satellite, we can believe it and say, well, there's a 5% chance it might not be a satellite. Okay, and so if there's a 5% chance that there might not be a satellite and you're president of the United States, are you willing to take that 5% chance? And I don't, I think the answer is probably not. So um, I think it does raise serious questions about uh, declaratory policy, what US declaratory policy should be going forward, but it puts, I think, an equal burden on the Chinese and others to say that now that we are in this situation, People need to communicate to the North Koreans that they should not be stacking any missiles anytime soon because of the threshold that they have crossed simply by saying that they now have a standardized warhead design. Can I you just all, amplify that point? Because yeah, I think it's really important. Uh, and that is, you, you don't just look at the stackable cable. You have to look at the whole suite of what they're building. You know? And to Christine's point about mobility, road mobility, uh, dispersal, SLBM, you know, I mean, yeah, the SLBM is a terror weapon, but you have to take into account that it's a capability. And, uh, and so when you look at that configuration in Toto, I think it changes the dynamic in thinking about this scenario. So this is a pretty consequential discussion. And uh, our earlier voting and discussion to me suggests that most of you, if not all of you, think we will probably face this uh, in the coming years. And let me just quickly ask for Maybe a nod in our head for months. Yeah. Do you all think we will, are likely to, not a prediction we will, but likely to face this, uh, this uh, dilemma? Plausibly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, April, May is 
missile testing season in North Korea. <laughs> so, July 4th weekend, in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. They like holidays. That's right. That's right. There goes golf at Mar-a-Lago. Um, okay, let's turn to a, in some ways worse, but, but in terms of policy. We're going to get to questions. We'll get to questions. If you'll be patient with them, let me go through this. Thank you. I'll remember you to go first. Um, uh, let's get to the breakout scenario where we're past this. Let's assume they develop the capability. And ask two questions before we go back to the panel. This is for the audience um, asking, um, what should we do, assuming North Korea has now tested and demonstrated it has a deliverable uh, nuclear weapons capability? Um, and the question doesn't specify whether it's Guam, Japan, Korea, or West Coast. Should we try to, or we can come back to that. We'll leave it vague about the range. <clears throat> could you explain D, please? So D would be an option where we deployed tactical nuclear weapons, but Japan and Korea would have some joint uh, dual-keyed um, uh, ability to uh, decide when and how to, uh, to launch. Easy question. <laughs> and C is just its U.S. has full operational control. Okay. Um, interesting. Uh, there's a lot of debate about um, uh, uh, C and D in Korea and Japan. Um, uh, all right. So primarily focusing on active defenses, <coughs> missile defense exercises, What's and so e? forth. Sorry? There's no what is E? There is no. There's no people keep voting for one. He, he, he is the person who's protest vote. Believes North Korea will do the right thing, and probably the person sitting next to them now. Um, all right, let's do the next question. It'll cue up our discussion on the podium, which is, you know, if when we're in that world where they have that capability and continue amassing weapons, what are our options in terms of policy and strategy? Turn to China. A. B shift to a regime change strategy. Um, C, try to cap it by not making a deal, which would legitimize North Korean nuclear weapons, but they don't export. I think that's Pyongyang's preferred mm -hmm. path. And D, uh, continue with uh, alliance uh, strengthening. All right, I'm going to start with you, Chris, uh, on the leveraging US-China relationship. Because what does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> and what no, does leveraging mean in the case of China and North Korea? Exactly, and I think that's the challenge. I mean, to my comment earlier, uh, you know, we, we are developing this increasing, it seems, disconnect where, where sort of China is stuck in this, um, what I would consider perhaps now antiquated narrative about issues such as buffer zones and refugees. And I mean, these are real issues, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, this is, this is a, a serious challenge for China um, in a security context. When we say leverage the relationship, I think it depends on how we choose to leverage it. So in other words, if we go to them and say, you have all the leverage, please use it, that's not proven to be a, a winning strategy. If we create leverage for us to leverage in the relationship, that could be uh, far more effective. And I also wanna state very strongly, I don't think we can or should count out the possibility that China would be willing to be more helpful than it's been under this kind of a scenario. Yeah. Um, you know, these are not mutually exclusive. Strengthening with allies would go, should go with any one of these, of course. Um, but Christine, how do you see the 
the basket of uh, the strategies? Yeah, I definitely see them as not mutually exclusive. I mean, I, I think I would try to draw from, you know, A, sorry, I don't have my glasses on. Um, China. A and D in particular, um, in terms of, you know, I, I thought in reference to, I think, the previous question as well, I think the Council on Foreign Relations had a task force recently that looked at this. A number of you, I think, were involved. And one of the things I thought was an interesting idea was the idea of a collective security arrangement where we go to something formal that says an attack on one is an attack on all. And I think that is something worth exploring. Um, in and just quickly to clarify, that's with our existing allies, or you're talking about China as part of that? I, I thought it was just um, ROK, Japan, and us. That's the CFR. Yes, exactly. I mean, I thought that idea was, right. was an interesting idea and worth exploring. I think in, in my experience with China, you know, I think it's interesting. I completely agree with Chris that we don't want to give them all of the leverage. And I think, you know, we consistently uh, communicated with China over the last couple of years saying, look, we're extremely concerned about what's going on in the DPRK. And if, if you all are not able or not willing to do more to bring them to the table, to restrain them, then we are going to have to take steps to protect our own national interests. And you may not like some of those, i.e. THAAD in Korea, for example. And I think you know, we, we were very serious about that. And I think that um, I, I think China took notice of that. So I think we need to think about it. And we need to continue that message and make that message even stronger by you know, giving them the stacked DD2 example of, look, you know, this is incredibly serious for us. And more than just you know, your concerns about refugees, and here are the kinds of things we might have to do if this happens. So I think we need to be doing that. And I'm a huge, we haven't talked very much about it, but, but any, I think, comprehensive approach towards the problem set on the Korean Peninsula that entertains some sort of diplomatic element, I think, has to be accompanied consistently with a pressure track. And clearly, China can do more. I mean, the 2270 was very significant, but there are, um, there's more that can be done. We need to have a multilateral mechanism. And I think that sanctions piece is incredibly important. Can you speak to this, Skip? I'll get to everyone. Um, but could you also talk about what um, you know, the job of, of our commander on the ground in Korea looks like in a world where North Korea has a demonstrated uh, nuclear weapons capability in terms of deterrence, provocations, and you know, how do you manage that world if you're, uh, you're Young Sun? Well, you've got to make sure that you've got the capabilities ready to hopefully find any potential use and the capabilities to either proactively take them out ideally before they would use them uh, or be prepared to, to react once, once they do use them. I mean, it would require, um, and I think we're getting to this point, a lot more intrusive type of ISR capabilities, uh -huh. a lot more ballistic missile defense, a lot more strike type of capabilities that we and our allies, and I agree, I think that should include Japan also uh, and working together from a trilateral perspective. But, you know, I, I think I would agree on this question that A, B, and D. I'm still uh, to the point where the regime either has to change itself or the regime needs to be changed. And I think that, you know, if you look at this from a larger perspective, We've talked about sanctions, we've talked about striking things and all. Um, I think the two missing components that need to be part of a regime changing strategy is number one, getting more internal pressure. Mm -hmm. You know, Victor talked about it with the amount of you know, folks that are 
that are leaving, defecting, and all of that. But we, and South Korea for that matter, really have not very pushed very hard at all just to try to get information in to the people and to the regime of North Korea about what freedom and human rights is, is all about. Try to push into them more, much more knowledge. And this, that can be done. The second part of it, I think, is clearly, more clearly defining what does a reunified peninsula really look like? I mean, much more than just, you know, free and open and human, not violating any human rights. But what is in it for North Korea? What is in it for property rights? What is in it for people of the regime that have not committed, committed crimes against humanity type of thing? Get some hope and some pressure and some knowledge into the people, and I think that will combine, that internal pressure combined with all the external pressure could potentially cause a, a real regime change, either taking Kim out or forcing him to change how he's been doing things. So, Bob, A, B, and D, give us your take, but also, what do you think about C? Uh, it occurs to me, listening uh, to this, that we have all moved uh, pretty much to the, a position in which we may be in now, by the vote a little bit ago, or we may be in within a months or years of advising or rooting for the use of force to deal with a ballistic missile test by North Korea. If this were the policy of the administration, if, they, if this were the thinking of the administration, I would go back to a word Victor, phrase Victor used early on, I think, if I roll back the tape, and it, it, it was our declaratory policy. Mm. If we're really <laughs> thinking or even planning to take out a North Korean ballistic missile, which they claim has a satellite above it, but we're going to use kinetic means, we should tell them. And we should, we should tell everybody that this is what we're, this is a declaratory policy. I said before, we don't bluff. So that means we do it. If, if they, but they should know that. They, they shouldn't be in the position after we, I agree that. we slap them of slamming their palm in their forehead saying, oh, I didn't think you'd do that. It was only a singing satellite, for pity's sake. So, so let's tell everybody. And what brings me to this is not only might that discourage them from doing it in the first place, that's what deterrence is about. The second thing is it might help focus the minds mm -hmm. yeah. in Beijing. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. That we are actually going to do this. We are going to be in a military situation and maybe a conflict on their border. Mm -hmm. They are going to see U.S. military and naval forces in ways they most want not to see them in combat very close to them. So I, I'm very focused on where we have kind of moved, yeah. uh, and, and you, or you have moved us. I'd like to yeah. blame you, but probably. <laughs> um, All right, let's do the last scenario, which in some ways is the most hopeful, but it's incredibly complex and dangerous as well, and that's um, instability or regime collapse. Um, and this is a what do we do about it question, so I hope you can all see that. What is the, we, we've stacked this so you have to prioritize it. What's the highest priority? Securing the nuclear weapons, stabilizing the peninsula, controlling refugee flows, um, exploiting the instability to make sure the regime really goes down, D, or all of the above. Refugees, as my six-year-old daughter says about, about C, not my problem. <laughs> um, 
it is China's problem, so you can be sure that China would have something to say about that. Let's do this one quickly so we can get questions. I'm not going to get to everybody. Start with Victor. You've done yeah. a lot of work on this. Yeah. I'll ask you about China, then skip about planning. Um, so just two, two points. The first is that um, um, so we have actually been doing um, surveying through our Beyond Parallel website of how people think about a unification scenario or an instability scenario and what issues are important. And maybe some of you have taken this, this survey that we sent out, but we basically asked people to give us to, uh, to scale it. So basically, how important is the issue to US interests, and uh, how much do we know about the issue? Right? And so, of course, what we were looking for was where, what were the issues where uh, this, was, this was done with US officials and experts. What were the issues where we considered to be very important to US interests, and we had very little information on it? And what we found, actually, surprisingly, was that the number one priority across those two metrics was not securing the nuclear weapons and missile. Hmm. The number one priority was actually B, stabilizing the domestic situation in North Korea, in terms of an issue that mattered greatly for US security interests, but about which we knew very little. Hmm. Right? And perhaps maybe, I mean, uh, securing the nuclear weapons came in second, maybe because we feel like we know a little bit more about that. But what came across clearly was that in a scenario like this, domestic stabilization was the real uh, blind spot. You're not serving people who live in Washington, New York, and Tel Aviv. Yeah, we knew nothing. <laughs> um, no, these, these were people here. This was, um, so, um, uh, yeah, so, I would, I so would certainly yeah. say A. No, so that's, that's the first point. And the, the, the second point I would say is that um, I think uh, D is very interesting because in every uh, sort of scenario game that we've done on this, uh, it's always an issue that comes up. If there's instability in North Korea, uh, people start, they're like little kids at a soccer game. They all start going for the nuclear weapons or for the <laughs> refugees. Or, but, but it all, yeah, it all comes to a screeching halt because people have to step back and say, well, what do we actually want at the end of this? Mm. Do we want to, like as Dee said, actually exploit, exploit the instability and end the regime? Or do we just want to contain the problem? It's like the big prior question that in almost every game that we played, people don't get to it until we're halfway through, through the scenario. Boy, I'd be worried about A. We know the North Koreans have connections to um, Hamas and the real IRA, and um, I'd be very worried about that one. But, but Skip, how, obviously we do them all. Obviously like, we do, do them all. Stack them? Yeah, yeah. I, I think from a, from a US perspective, A is, um, and I am surprised by that, the outcome yeah. of A, A is, is the most critical. I think from a South Korean perspective, um, a B and D, because I think, I think instability does lead towards to the end of the regime, is the highest priority to be able to do that. And, and I think that, um, I mean, there is, obviously can't go into the secret plans and everything, but there is definite plans that we have worked with the South Koreans on how to deal with different scenarios with in, instability uh, in North Korea and they accomplish all A through D. And I'll just leave it at that. Good. Uh, Chris, play Xi Jinping for a minute. What is his 
response to this? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm going to pick up on something that Bob said too, which I thought was very important, but I'm surprised there's not an F, which, which is to clarity policy with China. I mean, in this scenario, what, I'm sorry? some sort of discussion, I don't think it's a declaratory policy, it's a quiet discussion with the Chinese about what we will do in that kind of a scenario. I mean, one of the things that worries me is that in this sort of 2009-10 period, I think we had some pretty good quiet dialogue with them about these kind of scenarios, you know, and so on. You know, they're going to think about nuclear weapons quickly, they're going to think about refugees quickly, and they're going to think about what does this look like after it's all over. That's going to be a big one for them, especially as this sort of buffer zone mentality is still um, in effect. So my sense is I, I'm just surprised there's not more emphasis, because it's really about us and them at this point, and the allies, of course, but, but you know, that's a major, major factor, and we would want to reach out to them hopefully before something like this would happen. I think our experience, probably everyone on the podium uh, has been in, uh, in non-official settings, uh, I'll speak for myself anyway, dialogues with Chinese counterparts uh, on these scenarios have become increasingly specific and realistic mm -hmm. over the last five years. But for the government, mm -hmm. I imagine in Beijing, Harder. this is a problem they don't want to have to confront right now. It just brings up too many hard issues. All right, let's turn to the audience. I'm going to try to get uh, two or three questions, let everybody respond, and hopefully do a second round. So if you could briefly identify yourself and keep the question short, I'd, I'd appreciate it. I'm sure you're going to get the first word up here in the front. And my apologize to this side of the room. I, if I turn my chair, it'll fall off the podium. So, <laughs> uh, Norm Dix, former congressman from Washington State. I was uh, going to make the point that the ambassador made. If, if that is what we're going to do, we should have let them know about it in advance. And uh, now having said that, I'll quickly pivot to what, what are our anti-ballistic missile capabilities? I got THAAD, Aegis, is Aegis in play in this? And then the, and then the missile defense on the coast. Those are, is that what we have in terms of our capability? Basically. Uh, let's, we'll, we'll hold on to that one. We'll, we'll turn to you for that. Thank you. Washington State. Uh, yeah. California. I was giving <laughs> Does anybody know General Michael Flynn's opinion on this issue? <laughs> okay. That'll be a short one, I think, so we might have four questions. Uh, let me turn to the right. Yes, sir. Over here. Uh. Greg Tillman, board member of the Arms Control Association. Um, the panel has discussed a scenario that is a, a nuclear tip TD2 uh, launched. Uh, that seems wildly improbable, next to 0% chance. Does anyone on the panel think that Kim Jong-un would have any doubts in his mind about what would happen to him and his regime next after such a scenario? Just to clarify, uh, you're, you're saying that technically a nuclear tip TD2 is? No. You're saying Deterrence. that he would Deterrence. do that? That, that the North Koreans would consider Deterrence. a single nuclear uh, warhead being delivered to the United States right. as, seems as to be completely implausible. Do. Let's do one more. Um, uh, let's see, right here in the middle. And we'll probably get a second round. Bob Holly, retired foreign service officer. Where are the Australians and New Zealanders on this? Anywhere? And what about the Russians? Yeah. Uh, not out of range anymore. <laughs> um, okay, let's go down the line and pick up whatever one you like. We'll start with Christine. Um, I, I guess I would pick up on the, the what does General Flynn think about this, and I, I don't know, but I, but I am struck in listening to the conversation at how this problem set 
needs to be something that the next administration addresses very early and very um, systematically and strategically, as opposed to waiting until it comes up as a crisis, which often is kind of what, you know, the new administration's gonna have a ton on its plate, Syria, all sorts of challenges. Um, but I think this conversation <coughs> underscores the need to look at this as one of the sort of top uh, strategic problem sets we face so that we can think through what our options might be, what the implications are for declaratory policy, and if need be, to get that declaratory policy and things out early, um, as opposed to, again, waiting, which I think might be a, a possibility given all the other things on the plate. So I'll take that one. Uh, on the, the missile defense, all the things that you named, sir, but I also include in missile defense, as I think most would also, ISR and offensive things, mm -hmm. uh, not waiting to the thing launch. So, you know, all the strike capabilities that are part of that. You have to make the decision that you're going to use that as part of a defensive mechanism, but there are definitely capabilities that we have to be able to do that. I'm sorry, the B2? B2, of course. Well, in <laughs> <laughs> um, certain, certain, I don't know the answer. I, I mean, that, that takes it to a higher realm, I think. Um, I think on the, on the, the Mike Flynn question, I, I, I don't know specifically also what, what he thinks, but, but I am, I guess I am confident that the importance of alliances aren't all the same. And they aren't just from the alliance perspective of, you know, what are we given to other countries? We're in alliances for our own good, too. And if you look at the history of the alliance that we've had with Korea, what Korea has done helping us around the world, what we've gone to do things, what we've been able to develop economically and all, I guess I'm fairly confident that our alliance with Korea and with Japan is gonna be viewed as very important by this administration and it will be continued and I hope strengthened. I would just say quickly to that point, and, and to Christine's comment as well, you know, we should look at actually what he chose to say with President-elect Trump when he was interviewed by 60 Minutes. The two things he mentioned were North Korea and the terrible situation in, in the Middle East. So one presumes this is very much front of mind for him. So a key issue uh, this morning has been what do you do about the North Korean nuclear capability to reach the United States of America with a ballistic missile that we maybe can't intercept with high confidence? Right? And the suggestion was made that you do, don't do anything because you're very confident deterrence works. I mean, we don't know when deterrence works. We only know when it fails. And it hasn't failed with the Chinese and the Soviet Union and now the Russians. So why would you leap to go to war with North Korea thinking it doesn't work with the North Koreans because they have a leader, perhaps, who is different? All right. <laughs> I get that. But I think the question is on point. And I... I so that so much on point, I drive, go back to the other issue, if we are going to say that we, we do believe deterrence works in this world, except for North Korea, then we ought to have a good argument about why that's true. This is a fairly important thing, and we want to make sure the North Koreans understand that. Because North Koreans right now, because what we're really saying is that the, the significant thing that changes when they have the capability to reach the United States with some degree of confidence with a ballistic missile and a nuclear weapon that we will not allow them to launch. Right? We will strike them. And if that's really true, 
they need to know that what, what this capacity has done for them, it made them eligible for preemption when mm. they were not before. Mm. That's the significant difference for them. Yeah, and the, the, the only thing I would add to that is, is not only has it made them eligible for preemption, it also can create very destabilizing dynamics on their side. So for example, if they, you know, they might not launch a nuclear-tipped ballistic missile at the United States, but if they feel that they can deter the United States, then that will open up in their own minds all sorts of other strategic options mm. at lower levels of escalation in the conventional on the conventional ladder to try to push Japan or South Korea or extort funds from them, sue for peace, these sorts of things. So uh, the fact that they have they, they will have that capability opens up all sorts of new strategic options on both sides, all of which I think are quite destabilizing. Let me quickly do the Australia question because it is, it is not irrelevant at all. Um, when uh, CFR and the task force proposed something we've also talked about uh, and others, a collective security ag agreement with Japan, Korea, and uh, the United States, an attack on one is an attack on all. The reality is, for all intents and purposes, Australia is already in that. They're in the UN command. There are senior Australian officers integrated in our command. <coughs> um, and uh, they're in this uh, because uh, this is the United Nations still, if there's an attack but also because we are such tight allies in so many ways that they're integrated in our command structure at PACOM and USFK. Um, Australia's had a kind of cautiously forward-moving view on missile defense for budgetary and political reasons. Uh, if, if, if we had an Australian panel, I think one of the questions would be, should Australia be far more forward-leaning on missile defenses and integration in exercises with Japan and Korea? And I think the answer is yes. Um, that'd be my Australian answer. I think we can do a, one or two more. Um, let me get the gentleman with the beard in the back here. Always call on the guys with the beards. Thanks, sir. Uh, ben Lowson, U.S. Navy. Uh, my question primarily for Ms. Wormuth. Uh, it seems like several of the speakers said we need to have a credible deterrent or threat against North Korea's regime. Given the overall world situation, how do we generate the funds or even the administration interest in doing that? And let me do one more. Um, yes, sir. Right back here. Barry Jacobs, I'm a retired Foreign Service Officer. Ambassador Gallucci and I were at the War College together, because um, we're old. Um, no one seems to ask the simple question, or at least it, it, they've skirted around it, what does Kim Jong-un want, uh, and what would satisfy him? Obviously, he wants to stay in power, and I suspect he wants the uh, free flow of, of goods that he doesn't have to pay for to help with his own people. But beyond that, I don't know. OK, speed round. Just finish up here, 36 seconds to a minute each, going this way. Um, what does Kim Jong-un want? I think he wants to be, he wants a peace treaty with the United States as a nuclear weapon state. Uh, I think that's what he wants. I would uh, add to that, Barry, that, that uh, North Koreans clearly would like to loosen, if not fracture, U.S. alliances. Uh, with Seoul and Tokyo, beginning with Seoul, certainly. Uh, and they will do a lot to achieve that, and including, perhaps, enter negotiations. Uh, similar to what Bob said, he also wants China to continue to treat North Korea as a special relationship, not a normal state-to-state -state relationship. Yeah. And I would add to it also <laughs> that he wants to be able to maintain total control the type of government that he has um, with, with him as the, the pure dictator. 
So to the question on the defense budget and resources, I think, you know, perhaps um, there's a greater possibility under a Trump administration and a Republican-controlled Congress to see a solution to the Budget Control Act uh, and to lift sequestration, at least for the Department of Defense. And I think, you know, that would obviously strictly from a defense national security perspective be a good thing and might mean more resources for things like national missile defenses or ISR that could be part of the fine fix finish kind of solution. Now, that said, there are certainly, I'm not an expert on Congress, uh, former Congressman Dix probably knows more about this than I do, but I think there still is a, a, a significant cadre in the Republican Party in Congress who are deficit hawks, and it may not be quite as easy to lift the BCA as some think, but, but we'll see. So I would end one, by, yeah, yeah. Five, se 15 seconds. You know, we've done a lot of talking about capabilities in North Korea, what they have and, and what they're doing and all. But we should never forget the 150 to 200,000 people are in concentration camps and labor camps in North Korea and the folks that are dying up there. Yeah. I mean, yes, this is about capabilities and nuclear and all that, but what's right for people and what we should be standing for as a nation is critically important. Thank you. Uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, briefly to what we want to wrap this up. Um, you can hear how hard the problem is. I think, number one, I think everyone would agree is defense of our homeland and of our allies, absolutely number one. I would say we want out of this whole, however we get through this, we want a good relationship with China. But I would view that as a nice to have. In my view, the must have, because of all the uncertainties about the future of Asia, is we've got to have strong alliances through this problem and coming out of it. I think it's possible to get both the China piece and the alliance piece. And I think, as Chris suggested, they're actually two sides of the same coin. Hmm. When Beijing knows our alliances are non-negotiable and strong, uh, our, our work with China on this, I think, is going to be more uh, fruitful. 